Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week's episode is probably the cutest one we've ever done because the star of the show, we little domesticated foxes that bark and cuddle and play, and I really want one. Ludmilla was stunned when she first walked towards some pups that began wagging their tails in joy when she approached them. And this was five generations into the experiment. That's radically quick. But the story of Siberia's domesticated foxes isn't all fluffy furballs and snuggles. The dark story of the politics behind the experiment, when geneticists were murdered and scientists thrown in jail, sheds a light on what happens when the state interferes with scientific progress and fails to fund evidence-based research. Which brings us to our next segment, a little taste to drum up excitement for this weekend's March for Science. And there will be a poetry tent at the march, and there will be five pop-up workshops at the march. All of that was because I thought there should be some poetry at the March for Science. And lastly, we're going to be talking to Ellen Lagaman about why the liberal arts and sciences are so important, and why teaching them is more crucial than ever, especially in the least expected and most neglected places, like prison teaching our students is the most exciting teaching I have done anywhere, at Harvard, at NYU, at Columbia, anywhere. But let's get back to the stars of the show, those little domesticated foxes. Over 70 years ago in the Soviet Union, biologist Dmitry Belayev had a crazy idea. What would happen if you tried to mimic evolution and recreate the domestication of wolves into man's best friend? Belayev and his fellow biologist, Lyudmila Tret, set out to answer those questions in the wilds of Siberia with a few dozen silver foxes. But instead of taking 15,000 years, which would be a pretty unmanageable experiment, they managed to achieve results in about a decade. You might have seen photos of those cute little puppy-like foxes on the internet, but now we've got the full story. Lee Allen Dugatkin, an evolutionary scientist and historian of science, co-wrote this book with Ludmilla Trutt on this incredible experiment, which goes on to this day. It's called How to Tame a Fox and Build a Better Dog, which is a pretty good idea, I would say. I couldn't quite bring myself to go to Siberia, so I spoke with Lee in the studio. Thanks for joining us to talk about the world's cutest experiment, Lee. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So the basic story of the book is that for the past 58 years, scientists in Siberia have been working to domesticate the silver fox. So aren't foxes pretty vicious? Why would Dmitry Belayev pick the silver fox to be the subject of his research? I don't know that I would say they're especially vicious, but they're not particularly friendly towards humans. So it's a great question, why foxes? And you know, the, the logical choice would have been, if possible, to do something with wolves if you want to sort of mimic that process from wolf to dog. The, the reason they ended up doing it with foxes was that there was a giant fur trade in the Soviet Union in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when this work really started going. And so there were a ton of these animals that were available at what were known as fox farms around the Soviet Union where they were trying to breed them for their fur. Now, Belayev had a job at one of these institutes that was just doing research on these foxes in, in terms of their fur breeding possibility. And so he was already tapped into that system. It's a little tricky, though, because basically when Belayev began this work in earnest um, in the early 1950s, it was actually against the law in the Soviet Union to do work in genetics. And the only way that he could do this experiment in a way that would not put him and, more importantly, his team of researchers into jeopardy was to do it with foxes because he knew that so much money was coming in to the Soviet Union's fur trade that they would sort of look the other way. And foxes provided him a kind of political mask. So why was it illegal to do genetics research? Ah, well, this is sort of a sad saga in the history of science. In the 1930s, a fellow in the Soviet Union by the name of Trofim Lysenko became Stalin's right-hand man when it came to science. What he claimed was that Western genetics was wrong, that everything from Mendel on was simply incorrect, that it was a Western bourgeois theory that needed to uh, be eliminated. And he convinced Stalin of this, and he proposed an alternative that long ago within sciences had, had been dismissed, um, an idea known as Lamarckianism. Many, many, many people suffered because of this. I mean, there were thousands of people who lost their jobs um, as geneticists across the Soviet Union. Before Lysenko, the Soviet Union was a, a major, major place where genetics research was done. When Lysenko came to power, he fired many, many, many people, and quite a number of people were thrown into jail for doing genetics. And in fact, a couple of dozen of them were actually murdered. And one of the people who was murdered was Belayev's older brother. When Belayev was in his late teens, his brother was murdered by Lysenko's thugs for doing genetics. And so he knew very well how dangerous it was to do this. Wow. We don't really think of science as being something you can get murdered for these days. That's pretty incredible. So what was so dangerous about Belayev's research? What was his big hypothesis? His theory was, if you sort of look across all domesticated animals, you see a suite of traits that many, many different domesticated animals share. So for example, they tend to have floppy ears and curly tails and kind of mutt-like mottled fur patterns. You find these traits across many, many different domesticated species. And what Belayev said was, was that he was interested in finding out what the key factor was when people were domesticating animals. So we've domesticated animals for everything from protection to food, milk, 
to transportation. And what Belayev said is that the key thing that was important in all of those domestication events was you have to have animals that act in a pro-social way with humans. You can't breed them for the things that you want them to give you unless they interact in a friendly way with humans. And Belayev thought that what had happened in all the domestication events through human history, or at least most of them, was the key thing that our ancestors chose was the animals that were the most friendly towards humans. And Belayev thought that all of the other things that domesticated species share in common is somehow linked. And so what he did and what Ludmila did, so Ludmila came on from day one, she's the person gathering the data on this. And so what she would do would be, initially she went to some of these very, very large government-run fox farms where they were doing research on fur. She convinced them to give her a subset of a couple of hundred animals to work with for this experiment that Belayev was laying out. And she was involved from the get-go in selecting the foxes. How do they select which foxes to breed and pass on their traits to the next generation? All she did was note the fox's behavior as she approached, as she actually stood by the cage, and as she opened the cage. And what she was looking for were any behaviors that were either aggressive towards her or neutral or perhaps even pro-social. She would select the animals highest on the scale of friendliness towards humans. That was and has been since day one the sole criteria for who gets chosen to be the breeders for the next generation, the animals that are most friendly. Now, it's important to take into account that when she started this experiment um, in 1959, 1960, and she was initially doing it at these farms that were designed by the government for fur research, the animals that were the most friendly towards humans were not particularly friendly towards humans. This is all relative. They were the ones that were essentially not especially aggressive. Some animals would growl, they would jump up to the front of the cage with their teeth showing. Other animals would hide, but some would sort of sit there in a fairly neutral manner with respect to Ludmilla. And early on, that was mostly what defined pro-social. Over generations, though, that definition of how friendly you had to be towards humans changed. The more they got calmer and more tame foxes, the more the bar raised for how friendly the animals had to be before they would parent the next generation. But that's the heart of it. Wow. So you sort of gave it away. It did work. They turned friendlier. But what else happened? Like what other traits got passed along? So yes, of course, they did get friendlier. And in a sense, that's what um, anyone who would have done this sort of experiment would have predicted. That's precisely what you're selecting on. But what wasn't expected even about how tame and friendly they were was how quickly it happened. So we went from a population of foxes that were almost completely wild to within five to six generations, animals that were not only friendly towards humans, but that were essentially showing all these solicitous behaviors. Like Ludmilla was stunned when she first walk towards some pups that began wagging their tails in joy when she approached them. And this was five generations into the experiment. That's radically quick. At the same time, a few years later, just a few years later, sort of between year five and about year 15, all of these other traits began to emerge. Curly tails, droopy ears, 
a mutt-like color in their fur. And this was only happening in the foxes that Ludmilla was selecting for their tameness. They also have a, another line that is what we refer to as a control line, where basically they're not selecting the animals at all based on how friendly they are to humans, but everything else is the same. So you can sort of make sure that the one difference between what you're doing experimentally and the control is the key thing. It's tame behavior. The other foxes in the control line were not showing these behaviors. Only the domesticated foxes were. This is exactly what Belayev thought would happen. He thought that once he selected for tameness and friendliness, somehow or another, these other things, the curly tails and so on, are genetically linked. And there are many other things. For example, a little bit later, so now we're talking about probably about between the 10th and the 20th year the experiment had been running, they began to notice that the foxes' faces were looking much, much more dog-like. So instead of having a really pronounced fox-like snout, their faces were rounder. They were more sort of puppyish, dog-like than they were classic fox snout. They also noticed that the foxes were becoming um, sort of a little chunkier and lower to the ground. So if you look at their legs, they don't. The the domesticated foxes don't have those really sleek, nimble legs that you associate with a fox in the wild. All of these things come along for the ride because they never ever selected animals based on whether they had dog-like faces or curly tails, only on behavior, which was, you know, an incredible validation of Belayev's original hypothesis. No kidding. It's like full bingo. And there's one particularly hyper-friendly fox that gets a lot of attention in the book, Pushinka. Can you talk a little bit about what makes this little fox so special? So Pushinka comes into the story in the early 1970s. And so by this time, Ludmila and Belayev had really, really good evidence that their selection for friendliness in the foxes was working and that all of these other traits that we were talking about were really well established now. And along the way, as they were doing that, you know, these are geneticists. They were extremely careful to run a classic genetics experiment. And a classic genetics experiment when you're you know, selecting for behavior is to make sure that the animals are not learning anything along the way, that it's strictly genetic selection for friendliness. But Ludmila had this idea, which was now that we've established that, beyond doubt, let's think about this from a slightly different perspective. If we think about what happened with the domestication of dogs, Initially, what our ancestors would have done would have been sort of similar to what Belayev and Ludmila were doing, but just on a much, much slower basis. But at the same time, once that got going, proto-dogs would have been living with people. And those interactions where those animals could have learned things and would have had an everyday constant interaction with humans were key to the domestication process early on. Up to the early 1970s, Ludmila and Belayev and their whole team, and I should note there are many, many people involved with this work, they've basically simply looked at the genetics. Now they said, what would happen if we took one of our super friendly foxes and Ludmila and a few other people lived in a house with this fox and this fox's offspring 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, taking notes on all of the interactions between Pushinka and her kids and Ludmila along the way. Would that help them understand the process of domestication? What would happen if they allowed these kinds of one-on-one -on -one interactions where the animals and the humans could learn from each other? So they go and they choose Pushinka when she's a pup because she's super friendly. Um, Ludmila just walks by her. Pushinka's wagging her tail and licking her hand. Ludmila falls in love with her. Pushinka moves into this small little house on their experimental farm when she is a little bit more than one year old, I believe, and she's pregnant. So Ludmila moves in with her, and quickly Pushinka gives birth, and Ludmila is basically living with Pushinka and her pups. And she is noting all of these incredible things. These animals love nothing more than to play with her. So they're walking around freely. They can move around the house. They can go anywhere they want. They like to sleep next to her and snuggle up to her. They sit by her side when she's working. She plays all of these little games with them. And clearly, Pushinka is bonding with her in ways that you would think were really critical during the early domestication period from wolves to dogs. And her pups are as well. I mean, when Pushinka gave birth to her pups, she had been living with Ludmila in this house for a little bit, and she did something right from the start that was extraordinary. Typically, when female foxes give birth, and even when the tamest foxes give birth, that's the one time that they pretty much don't want humans around. Pushinka, she gave birth and she basically carried her pups over and dropped them in front of Ludmila to show her what these pups look like. It was an act of pride on Pushinka's part. She wanted to show her friend her kids and Ludmila was sort of stunned. And from there, it just got more and more uh, hyper-friendly between the two of them. It came to sort of a crescendo one night where something that to this day Ludmila looks back and smiles every time she tells the story. So one night Ludmila was sitting out on a bench and she was reading a book like she tended to do sort of at twilight and Pushinka was lying down right by her side where she liked to be. And what had happened was there was this new um, night guard that basically patrolled the experimental farm just to make sure everything was okay. Uh, but Pushinka didn't know this individual, right? And, and Pushinka was essentially friendly to all humans that Ludmila had introduced her to before. This was an individual, the guard, that she did not know. And as Ludmila's sitting there reading, when Pushinka sees the guard in the distance, she gets up she runs full speed at this potential intruder, at this potential danger, and she begins to bark like a guard dog. No one had ever seen this kind of behavior in any fox anywhere. And as soon as Ludmila walked over and began talking with the guard, then Pushinka knew everything was okay, and she calmed down. But her immediate re response was to protect her friend Ludmila. It's exactly the sort of thing when we think back and in our imaginations try to picture how did this domestication of wolves to dogs occur? This is exactly what you could imagine, you know, some, some proto-dog all of a sudden jumping the, to the defense of their master. This is what Pushinka did. And it was another sort of breakthrough in, in the experiment. And it was only because Ludmila had the courage to sort of step outside the classic 
genetic breeding that they were doing and that they continued to do. This was sort of a side project, but because she had the courage to suggest it and Belayev had the brilliance to say, yes, let's, let's try this, they, you know, reshaped the way we think about domestication. Wow, that's so adorable. It, I can't believe it even counts as science. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I don't. It's nice, isn't it? I mean, that, you know, that's in some ways one of the things that drew me to this project to work with Ludmila was that, you know, it has all of this profound science in it, and yet it has so many other things. It has these bonds that, you know, we're talking about. And it was sort of those stories, in addition to the science and the politics, that really make it such an incredible tale. Okay, I have one last final question, and it's probably the most urgent one Where can I get a fox? <laughs> it's a great question. Everybody asks that. You know, it's difficult. So as of right now, they don't sell them to the public in any sort of open way. So you're going to have to wait for that. There are a few out there that have been sold when they really needed money to keep the research going. But right now, um, you wouldn't be able to get your hands on one of these foxes very easily. And if you were able to, it would cost you probably a cool five grand. So uh, I, I wouldn't hold my breath for it, but I'll tell you, if you get the chance um, to hold one or see one or interact with one in any way, do it because it'll be a life-changing event for you. If anyone listening wants to send a $5,000 donation to the American Scholar for the purchase of a fox, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So the basic The domesticated fox experiment may be conducted out in the open now, but in our next segment, we're going underground to the tunnels where we taped one of our first episodes in the DuPont Underground. The March for Science held a poetry reading with Jane Hirschfield this week, whose poetry has explored the relationship of humans to the earth and all of its inhabitants for decades. And in case you're looking for some reasons to march this Saturday or next at the People's Climate March, we spoke with some folks who are planning to host it. And the this climate weekend. march next week, um, because I'm friends with a great many scientists, I had been undone by uh, the order to the federal scientists to stop speaking and the taking down of climate change information from the websites. And so when I heard the March for Science was going to happen, I had the thought there ought to be some poetry at it. And I eventually sent that thought to the Volunteers for March for Science uh, link on their website. And after a couple of weeks, they wrote me back and they said, oh, that's a pretty good idea. Let's do it. And there will be a poetry tent at the march and there will be five pop-up workshops at the march. And there's this event and there's the event after the march. And all of that was because I thought there should be some poetry at the March for Science. So this is a poem which has a quality I need in my own life, and it's a quality I need for the world. The title is Optimism. More and more I have come to admire resilience, not the simple resistance of a pillow whose foam returns over and over to the same shape, but the sinuous tenacity of a tree. Finding the light newly blocked on one side, it turns in another. A blind intelligence, true, 
But out of such persistence arose turtles, rivers, mitochondria, figs, all this resinous, unretractable earth. Science is lagging behind already with funding. And the NIH budget has been flat for almost 10 years. Any cuts to that budget means that science as we know it could cease to exist. If the research community doesn't come out and speak on their behalf and inform the public of the importance of research, then uh, we're going to have some problems. Hi, I'm Jennifer Chang, and I'll be reading Dorothy Wordsworth. The daffodils can go fuck themselves. I'm tired of their crowds, yellow rantings about the spastic sun that shines and shines and shines. How are they any different from me? I too have a big messy head on a fragile stalk. I spin with the wind. I flower and don't apologize. There's nothing funny about good weather. Oh, spring again, the critics nod. They know the old joy, that wakeful quotidian, the dark plot of future growing things, each one labeled Narcissus Nobilis or Jennifer Chang. If I died falling from a helicopter, then this would be an important poem. Then the ex-boyfriends would swim to shore, declaiming their knowledge of my bulbous youth. Oh, flower, one said, why aren't you meat? But I won't be another bashful shank. The tulips have their nervous joie de vivre, the lilacs their taunt. Fractious petals, stop interrupting me with your boring beauty. All the boys are in the field, gnawing raw bones of ambition and calling it ardor. Who the hell are they? This is a poem about war. I got involved in the March for Science a lot because of my mom. She's a science educator in horticulture, and she's helped me understand her work over the years. So I'm here in a big part because of her. I'm Kate Daniels. I'm going to read a poem called The New Beauty. Beauty is magnetic until the poles reverse and all that energy backs up and forces itself in the opposite direction, filling us up with shame and sickness. Then the ascetic holy man dynamites the sculptures he used to pray before, and the spurned lover tosses acid on the beauty queen, his former wife and the novice painter, maddened by her master's gift, slashes X's in his canvas with a knife. Then there's the outdoorsman who used to love the Appalachian Highlands where he was born, who makes a deal to blow the insides from a mountain, efficiently extracting gas, and kills the ancient beauty of the verdant, untouched holler his bosses stole it from. I wonder how he sleeps at night, killer of beauty, murderer of life. He should watch that online video of the West Virginia man whose county has been fracked. How beautiful the drinking water is, tumbling from his kitchen tap. You can't even see the methane pouring down unseen inside the stream until he strikes a wooden match and douses it inside the flow to produce 
a mushroom cloud of orange flame that bursts and sizzles in the air he steps back from, shielding his child, dazzled, as anyone would be, by the beautiful vision of burning water. Everybody has a connection to poetry. Poetry is very accessible to many people, and sometimes science isn't like that. So when you can use poetry to reach people and tell them about science, it's a really powerful thing. My name is Sarah Browning, and this is my poem, Gas, which is forthcoming in my new book, Killing Summer. After the great snow of 2016, my car sits locked in icy drifts a week, green fossil of the oil age preserved in graying amber. I relearn the art of walking, of reading pocket paperbacks on the bus, which uses this same stuff, this gas, to bear us through the snow-narrowed streets of Washington, D.C., capital of Exxon, capital city of Shell. Still, we are two dozen here driving one tank. Once the rains come and the weather gang shakes their collective heads as the mercury rises to 60 degrees, my car is free to roam again the precincts of BP, the Republic of Sunoco. I'll drive my car to the climate change rally. I'll drive it to the poetry reading that protests war in Iraq that denounces repression in Syria, that stands in solidarity with poets locked up in Saudi Arabia. My car gives me that much freedom and power, plus music to soothe me and a phone charger to keep me connected to my comrades in struggle. My car glides smoothly in and out of gear, builds my self-esteem as I parallel park perfectly each day in tight spots on the hill where we dwell. The weather scares me, the wars enrage me, the poets, silenced by the despots, break my heart. But my car needs me. My car is nothing without me. My car and I are one. I pledged my allegiance long ago an American century ago to my beautiful, necessary, beloved car. Even as someone that hasn't worked in science, um, I'm a huge supporter because I really believe that our solutions are going to come from things that are based on facts, that are based on evidence, and that are based on the things that science can offer. Ellen Lagaman has taught college students at Harvard, NYU, Columbia, Bard, and half a dozen prisons. Her new book, Liberating Minds, makes the case for why we should be offering college degrees to the most isolated members of our society, the nearly 2.5 million individuals that the United States keeps behind bars. She's joining us from New York. Thanks for talking to us, Ellen. Thanks for having me. 
So since it's the subtitle of your book, I feel like I have to just launch into it. What is the case for college in prison? Well, there are many different arguments you can make, but basically the most important one is that we have more than 2 million people in prison. 97% of them will come home at some point. And all of us, not just the people being educated, but all of us in American society are better off if they come home educated, ready to go to work, than if they come home having wasted time doing nothing and basically being de-skilled in prison. So the most important argument is you can enhance people's lives and what people call human capital by educating them in prison as opposed to diminishing their lives and diminishing their human capital. So how have you seen those arguments play out in the classrooms that you've taught in. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the the prison grads that you've taught and what they've done afterwards? Well, the people in prison are as varied as the people not in prison. And I've had many different students. The one commonality among them is they are extraordinary students. The reason why I teach for the Bard Prison Initiative is because teaching our students is the most exciting teaching I have done anywhere, at Harvard, at NYU, at Columbia, anywhere. And it's exciting because the students want to learn, they're eager to learn, they're eager for knowledge. They, by and large, have not had good educations before they came to prison, and they're very eager to make up for that. Um, I haven't counted how many of my students are home as opposed to not home, but probably most of them are now home. And they're doing extraordinarily well. Our people find jobs within usually three weeks of the time they leave prison. Many of them are, in addition, involved in extracurricular kinds of activities in their neighborhoods. One person I often mention is involved in the Brooklyn Bail Fund, raising money for people who can't afford bail and helping them stay out of prison. So the students do extraordinarily well. One of the things you mention is the recidivism rate amongst graduates compared to the broader national population. The national average is something like 50%, and it's in the single digits for the Bard Prison Initiative and for most other ones. Um, But that leads me to wonder, do you think that there is some self-selection bias at work there? Like the prisoners who would choose to follow a college path while in prison weren't likely to commit crimes again? The question of self-selection is one of the most common questions people ask me. And I think there's no doubt that our students are self-selected. We pick students for the Bard Prison Initiative on the basis of our judgment of their motivation, their aspiration, how likely they are to persevere in a very tough college program. So we're, in a sense, creaming, but we're not creaming in terms of academic ability or academic prior achievement. Um, It's more personal characteristics. And there's no formal process for doing that. It's just our subjective judgments based on essay students write and a personal interview. But amongst the people we interview and who take the exam, many of them who don't get in on the first try apply again. And many of our most successful students have applied two, three, four, five, six, eight times so that in between they study, they read, they improve their language skills. And that shows motivation and aspiration, and we eventually admit them. Wow. 
So Bard is a liberal arts college, and as such, the prisoners who are earning those degrees and trying to get into those programs are also pursuing a liberal arts education. Right. And unfortunately, as we've seen, the liberal arts are under attack. So what's the argument for extending the liberal arts, which are under siege already as being useless, elitist, or financially crippling, to prisoners, rather than, say, bringing in technical schools or STEM programs, which are being pushed for the general population, too? Well, contrary to the current popular opinion, I actually think liberal arts are extremely practical. They help you learn how to learn, and they help you learn how to think. And particularly in the kind of economy we live in today, where people are likely to have several different careers and move in several different directions throughout their life, those are the skills, the capacities that are most important. They're much more important than learning a specific job. Maybe in the short run, the day you graduate, having a specific job skill will open the door. But over the long haul, the kinds of capacities that are nurtured by the liberal arts are very, very useful. And one of the things that's interesting about our incarcerated students is that many of them might have chosen a vocational program if they had that choice. But after they've been in the program for a while, they are the most articulate people I know about how the liberal arts are practical and useful and what they've gained from them. Well, The American Scholar is published by Phi Beta Kappa, so we are totally on your team there. I know. I read it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. So do you think that argument also extends um, to the college for all argument that was talked up a bunch in the 2016 presidential campaign, for instance? Uh, how, How do you advocate for folding prison into that? Well, the argument that people advance against college and prison is that it's not fair to give somebody who has been convicted of a crime a privilege, that is, free college for a year or two or three or four, when people on the outside who have not been convicted of crimes are not able necessarily to go to college because they can't afford it. So the college for all argument takes away the fairness complaint that people advance against college and prison. If we have college for all, There is no reason not to include people in prison. There is every reason to include them. But college for all makes sense just in terms of social policy in the United States. We have fallen behind other countries in our rates of enrollment and particularly completion. I happen not to be somebody who believes that everybody ought to have a liberal arts education. I think we need a variety of different post-secondary programs for different people with easy movement back and forth between them. So somebody may initially want a vocational program and then a few years later may instead want a liberal arts program. I think that kind of movement should be encouraged. The more our population is educated, the more we all gain. Can you make one last case for why educating our prisoners is not just a benefit to them and their families, but to our wider society? It's important to qualify what I'm about to say by making the point that college and prison is not a panacea. I am not necessarily arguing it alone can address all the problems associated with mass incarceration. That said, there is no question that 97% of the people who are currently in prison will come home someday. 
And the question I like to ask people is, would you prefer to have an educated neighbor or an uneducated neighbor? An educated neighbor presumably has a job, contributes taxes, will not return to prison, is more likely to be reintegrated with their family, and is generally better disposed to lead a productive, happy, healthy life. So you don't even need to go as far as making a human rights argument that basically education for all people is a human right. You can simply make a more pragmatic argument that it serves all of us in a variety of ways to educate people in prison as far as they can go. That's it for Smarty Pants. Maybe we'll catch you at the March for Science this Saturday. But if not, we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.